you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 460. It's titled, Should You Be 100% Invested in Stocks Before and During Retirement? A recent study says yes. A listener recently sent me this paper. He said he was fascinated by it and its implications. The paper is titled, Beyond the Status Quo, A Critical Assessment of Life Cycle Investment Advice. It's by three co-authors, Enarkulova, Cedarberg, and Odorti. They say they challenge two central tenets of life cycle investing. One, investors should diversify across stocks and bonds. They argue it should be 100% stocks. The second is the young should hold more stocks than old. They argue that retirees should still be 100% invested in stocks. They write an even mix of 50% domestic stocks and 50% international stocks held throughout one's lifetime vastly outperforms age-based, stock-based strategies in building wealth, supporting retirement consumption, preserving capital, and generating bequest. That's some pretty startling conclusions. We'll take a look at this paper as well as a second paper by the same authors that looks at the spending rate to see if this is something that we should actually do. Can we do it? Do we have the stomach to be 100% stock despite the big drawdowns that can be seen? The authors in the paper point out that Americans contribute about 5% of their total employee compensation to defined contribution plans. That's a $586 billion in just 2020. Big question they have is how should they invest those savings? And the authors share the, the consensus wisdom from investing textbooks that the young should be more heavily invested in stocks because they can stomach the drawdowns and they have the human capital to overcome those losses as they continue to save for retirement. Popular financial writers such as Dave Ramsey, Susie Orman, also share similar advice to have more in stocks when you're younger, less when you're older, and, and diversify by having some fixed income exposure. Even the government, the federal government, through the Pension Protection Act of 2006, says that investment plans, defined contribution plans, should have a qualified default investment alternative. What the participants are invested in if they don't choose any of the options. And they say that that default option should provide long-term appreciation and capital preservation through a mix of equity and fixed income exposures. That's the consensus. That's what's taught. That's what I've practiced. That's what I have taught also. A mix uh, of stocks and not just bonds, but other asset classes to get diversification. What these authors did, though, is they built a, a really interesting data set because many of the studies 
that look at what percent of the retirement nest egg should be spent during retirement, such as the 4% rule, or investing for the long run is based on U.S. data, U.S. stock data. That's a problem because the sample size of major asset classes in the U.S. is fairly small. The data generally only goes back to 1925. Most of the academics that, that use this data are researchers. They get it from the Center for Research and Security Prices. And so if you're modeling, let's say, a Monte Carlo simulation of returns, you only get a few 30-year sample of stock returns. Using only U.S. data also suffers from survivorship bias. We've discussed this in earlier episodes that the U.S. has been extraordinarily lucky. If we look at the pricing of options to protect against the downside put options, it, it appears that the U.S. just hasn't had a lot of the bad things that have happened to other countries. Trading halts for an extended period of time where the stock market is closed. Wars on their home territory that's disruptive. Hyperinflation, other extreme events. These are events that have impacted other countries, but not the U.S. And so when we're doing a study and saying stocks for the long run, and we only use U.S. financial markets to determine that, it can be somewhat biased because of how fortunate the U.S. has been in the past, and we're not entirely sure the U.S. will be as lucky or fortunate looking out into the future, particularly when we're talking a 50-year time horizon for investing in stocks. What these authors did then is they built a database using 38 developed market countries. And so they have what effectively is 30,000 specific monthly observation, and the data covers from 1890 to 2019. They focused on domestic stocks, international stocks, bonds, and bills, or very, very short-term government bonds. And they did what's called a bootstrap simulation. They took 10-year blocks of time, 120 months, and they would sample from one of the countries for that 10-year period of time so that there was consistency with how the stocks performed relative to the bonds, relative to effectively cash, and even the experience of those local investors, what their returns would have been investing outside of that home country. They did many, many simulations sampling from this data. And the reason they used 38 different countries is because those countries had different experiences and they didn't suffer from the easy data effect. It's real easy to do a study, just grab the crisp data, you do the study, but they actually had to work to put together this database and they used the same database, the same process, this block bootstrapping in their study on spending rates, which we'll also address in this episode. That's how they generated the returns, but they also looked at sample couples that had different life experiences. Some were unemployed for a time and weren't able to contribute to their retirement. Now, they used a 10% contribution rate, but if they made less than $15,000, then they didn't contribute that year. In other words, they tried it to generate a, a realistic life scenario of someone, a couple entering the workforce at age 25, saving for 40 years, experiencing a certain return stream of these assets, then retiring at age 65, collecting Social Security, continuing to invest, spending the money down using the 4% percent 
spending rate in that they spent 4% in the first year of retirement, and then it was adjusted for inflation. But in their case, they were using, since they're using real numbers, net of inflation numbers, they were able to just keep that spending amount steady at 4%. And then they saw what happened. And they looked at the probability of retirement ruin, running out of money. And they based it on different strategies, a traditional target date fund strategy that has a glide path where the amount in stocks drops over time. They used a traditional balanced approach, 60% stocks, 40% bonds. They used an all equity approach, all domestic equity. And they used 50% domestic stocks and 50% international stocks. So many, many different scenarios. And they found that the stock strategy that was invested 100% in domestic stocks throughout the life cycle generated 30% higher average retirement wealth than target date funds. And the strategy of 50% domestic and 50% international produced 32% higher average retirement wealth. Now, that should raise a red flag because stocks experience positive skewness. Because stocks are volatile, there can be periods where stocks do very, very well. And as a result, because of those extreme events where things go very, very well, we'll see the average of a stock portfolio, the ending wealth is brought up. That average is is increased or elevated because of the really good times that happen. Whereas most of the observations, including the median, the middle, will fall below the average because of the positive skewness. We'll look at in the data and their tables, their summary tables, how we can see that positive skewness. Because we don't care about the average as investors. We care about ruin, how often that happens, run out of money. And we care about the median outcome, the 50% probability outcome. They admit in their paper that the stock strategy does have worse left tail outcomes. In other words, retirement ruin than a target date fund. The purely domestic 100% allocation to stocks. But being diversified internationally actually did better in terms of the percent of retirement ruin. They found that retired couples using target date funds have a 16.9% probability of running out of money during retirement, retirement ruin, using the 4% spending rule. The 100% domestic stock allocation had a 17.4% probability of retirement ruin. But surprisingly, the all stock, 50% domestic, 50% international, had retirement ruin of only 8.2%, so much less. Now, the all-stock portfolio had bigger drawdowns during the 40-year accumulation phase and the, the spending phase. The maximum drawdown for a domestic and international allocation was 50% versus a target age strategy of 38%. We'll look at the, the impact of this drawdown on behavior and deciding whether we should pursue this or not. Let's take a closer look at the outcomes. They had eight scenarios, and we won't go into detail of each one. I mentioned the target date fund, the balanced option, 60% stocks, domestic stocks, 40% bonds. They had a balance that included international, so 30% stocks, domestic stocks, 30% international stocks, 40% bonds. They had a couple of age-based rules where the allocation to stocks decreased as the investor got older. They had a capital preservation strategy, 100% in treasury bills or very, very short-term government bonds. 
And then they had the two equity strategies, one 100% domestic stocks, the other 50% domestic, 50% international. As I mentioned, the allocation to all stocks had a higher average at the end of all the strategies, about 20% higher. The worst in terms of the amount of wealth, and this is wealth at retirement, was T-bills because it, it clearly they weren't earning as much. But the best outcomes, the 99 percentile outcomes, was the all stocks. Even the 95% handily outperformed. Big benefit on the extreme upside. We care about the 50% percentile, though. The median, that 50%, wasn't that different for the target date fund. For example, the, the 50 percentile amount was 0.58. The all domestic stocks was 0.62. And the domestic and international stocks was 0.73. That median, that 50% percentile, wasn't that different. And the 25th percentile on the downside, those, so those observations that were worse than 75% of the outcomes, the target date fund actually did better than the 100% domestic stocks. Some of the age base reducing the allocation did better than 100% stocks. But at the 25 percentile, where 75% of the observations did better, the domestic international 100% did do better, 0.40, versus the others, target date fund was at 0.33. So in truth, having that 100% stocks, including 50% of the stocks being international, did do better than all the strategies, even some of the, the worst case scenarios. But what about the drawdown? It's clear that the higher allocation to stocks had bigger drawdowns. And what we don't know is when an investor faces those losses, how they will react. I know investors that have never returned to the stock market after losing money in the great financial crisis of 2008. And that's the biggest challenge with a 100% allocation to stocks. We don't know how we will react because we're not a Monte Carlo simulation. We get one shot as we proceed through time and we don't know how we're going to react. Will we have the fortitude to sit and recover those losses? If investors do, at least based on this simulation, things would have worked out just fine for the 50% domestic, 50% international allocation. But there's no guarantee that we would have the fortitude to not bail on the stocks. Another table was what percent of the retirement income, the earned income at retirement was replaced using the 4% rule plus Social Security. And again, for the 95th percentile, for example, the all stock portfolios did measurably well than the other strategies. But we care about the median outcome because of positive skewness. And at the 50% percentile level, the target date fund wasn't that different than the 100% domestic stock allocation, replacing about 93% of pre retirement income versus 96% for domestic stocks and 105% for the stocks, the domestic international combination. Now, the drawdown during retirement, maximum drawdown, was much less for the target date fund at the 50% percentile level. And, that, and we would expect that because by that point, the investor has less in stocks. What about retirement ruin? The, the amount of wealth at death 
the median was higher for having 100% in stocks, including international stocks. But at the 25th percentile level, domestic stocks didn't necessarily perform any better than the other strategies. The more diversification did do better. So when we, when we think about this study, it is true that a 100% stock portfolio, including having 50% in international stocks, does perform better. It does reduce the, the, the probability of ruin if we stick to the plan. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The author's and there's an additional co-author, released sort of a companion study focusing on retirement spending rates, trying to figure out, well, what percent should investors spend in retirement? The consensus is the 4% rule. That's what's typically taught. But again, most of those studies are based on U.S. data. Their study, same data set, 38 developed countries, 2,500 years. They point out for example, the risk of using just U.S. data is Japan experienced a real return of negative 9% from the 30-year period from 1990 to 2019. There's no guarantee that our country, where everyone lives, will do as well. What's fascinating about this paper was an investor 
in 60% domestic stocks, 40% bonds, using the 4% rule, retiring at age 65, faced a 17.4% chance of retirement ruin. Now, if it was just U.S. stocks, that percentage was less, again, because of selection bias and the fact that the U.S. has been fortuitous and not experiencing hyperinflation or war domestically. But if we broaden out the data set, 2,500 years worth of data, 38 different countries, the probability of ruin ends up being 17%. And then they looked at, well, what, would, what should the spending rate be if we wanted to keep that probability uh, of retirement ruin running out of money at 5% or less? And the spending rate would be, for 60-40 portfolio, 2.26%. That's including their data set with 38 developed countries. If we just use U.S. sample, we're right there, the 4.2%. 100% stock portfolio, the U.S. sample, 5% risk of ruin, it's 4% spending rate. If we use the broader data set, the more inclusive data set, the spending rate is only 2% to keep that probability of ruin less than 5%. Those are sobering. Now, even with their new data set, there, there's some potential problems with it. For example, they try to avoid some survivorship bias, but there are some countries that get dropped from the database because they're no longer developed. So Czechoslovakia was only in their database from 1926 to 1945. Chile was there from 1927 to 1970. Argentina, 1947 to 1996. Now, they use some classification. Once a country's labor share that was in agriculture dropped below 50%, then it was added to the database. And then after 1948, if they were added to the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, they were added. But then you had countries leaving. So that, that is a challenge with their approach. You, you have to decide. So it doesn't include emerging markets. And it assumes that what happened is what happened. But it didn't have to be that way. And that's the problem with, with all of these historical studies. Even if we get a, a better data set, and this is, and it's a data set that doesn't support a 4% spending rate in retirement, there are still some selection rules and, and some potential challenges. It assumes that in the, over those 10-year period of time that is used in the blocks, that the correlations are constant, that the volatility is constant. There's a risk that uh, maybe the block shouldn't have been 10 years. Maybe it should have been 20 years. Or There's some discretion in terms of deciding. And there could have been other extreme events that may have happened that just wasn't included in the data set. I think this is the best data set I've seen for these type of studies. But again, it is a Monte Carlo simulation. It isn't what we're going to experience going through time as we try to implement this. How will our behavior change? And I, and I thought about this over the break because I read Nassim Nicholas Taleb's first book, Fooled by Randomness. It came out in 2001. I've never read it. I've read his other four books. Black Swan was the first one I read. It came out in 2007, and it completely changed how I approach investing, my awareness of risk, how I thought about risk. And I thought over the break, how would my investment career have differed had I discovered Fooled by Randomness in 2001 and recognize a investor's track record is so short, you really can't make any conclusions and, and some of the other behavioral things that are outlined in that book. And so we don't really know how will we react? What Talib teaches, and, and another book I'm rereading, Talib's former partner, Mark Spixnagel, his, 
book is Safe Haven Investing, is we want to eliminate these big drawdowns because of volatility drag, how difficult it is to recoup, not just behaviorally, but just mathematically, and that if we can eliminate the big drawdowns, that will raise our portfolio returns and allow us to have more in retirement. It's just figuring out how to do that. And so I'm reading it again because I Spitznagel doesn't go out and tell you this is the golden asset class to do it. He teaches a methodology and I'm going through the math again to see, is there a way to protect against the downside in a cost-effective way? Because if you can't reduce risk cost-effectively, then we can't have 100% in stocks unless we can live through these major drawdowns. Now, the conclusion of the two papers is international diversification helps. And many investors don't do it. They're still 100% domestic stocks, or they have a token allocation to non-domestic stocks, 10%, 15%. These authors study supported a 50% allocation to international stocks. The other conclusion is a lower spending rate is necessary in order to avoid retirement ruin. Most people can't afford to live in retirement spending 2%. So they either have to gamble or you buy an annuity and get that guaranteed income through that annuity, something we've talked about numerous times on the show. Their study was also based on saving 10%. We can build a bigger buffer by saving more than that. And finally, recognize that there's always going to be problem with the data. And so even as much as we tried to clean up the data, there just isn't enough data for the history of the stock market, particularly for one country. This data sets better, but there's still some selection bias in terms of the data. And I wouldn't want to bet my retirement on this data set, even though the conclusion is you'll do better in the long term with 100% diversified allocation to stocks, including international. I don't have the risk tolerance for it, which is why I've never been 100% stocks. I had more when I was younger, but once I achieved financial independence, part of which was also due to luck, based on a return series of portfolios that I was managing, our team was managing, we did very, very well, attracted client assets, increased the valuation of our firm, and so I sold. But there was an element of luck with that in terms of the sequence of returns. And so when I left the investment advisory business, I'm an incredibly risk-averse investor because I haven't found the way to protect against the downside with a high allocation to stocks. So I don't have a high allocation to stocks. About 15% of my net worth is in stocks, common stocks. I have additional allocation to preferred stocks. I have many different asset types, which you can see my portfolio as a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus, and I share that every month. So be careful with studies and recognize we don't know whether the conditions in the future will be like the conditions in the past. And we don't know whether our behavior in the future will differ from our behavior in the past. And that's why I tend to be more conservative investor, because I don't have the human capital to make up for a huge drawdown, whereas younger investors can. And so they should be and have a higher allocation to stocks, including international stocks. That's episode 460. Thanks for listening. You may be missing some of the best Money for the Rest of Us content. Our weekly Insider's Guide email newsletter goes beyond what we cover in our podcast episodes and helps elevate your investment journey with information that works best in written and visual formats. With the Insider's Guide, you can discover actionable investing insights provided only to our newsletter subscribers. 
Unlock greater investing confidence with high-value snippets from our premium products, plus membership and asset camp. Access exclusive news, offers, and events you won't hear about anywhere else. Further connect with the Money for the Rest of Us team and community. And when you sign up, we'll also send you our exclusive investing checklist to help you invest with more confidence right away. The Insider's Guide is the best next step to get the most out of your investment journey. If you're not on the list, go to moneyfortherestofus.com and subscribe with the Become a Better Investor sign-up box. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.